Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Cato. Thank you for coming. My name is Malou Innocent. I'm a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome you here today for our policy forum, Drones and the New Way of War. Drones, or unmanned aerial vehicles, are called many things. Wasps, mosquitoes, airborne spies, flying cell phones, Orwellian killing machines, and my personal favorite, unaccountable armies of flying robot death squads. <laughs> In an age of fiscal austerity, drones bring a competitive cost advantage when weighed against conventional fighter aircraft or full-blown military intervention. But beyond issues of costs, experts disagree over the legal justifications behind the targeted killing of Al-Qaeda senior leaders and their associated forces, including American citizens. To shed light on some of the issues surrounding one of the most controversial aspects of U.S. counterterrorism policy, as well as the classified Justice Department white paper that prompted popular interest in drones, I am pleased to introduce an esteemed panel of legal and national security experts who collectively hold a wide range of opinions. Our first speaker will be Benjamin Wittes, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He is a member of the Hoover Institution's Task Force on National Security and Law and a co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Lawfare blog, which is devoted to sober and serious discussion of hard national security choices. In addition to editing and co-editing a number of books on technology and its implications for national security and public policy, as well as previously serving as a Washington Post editorial writer specializing in legal affairs, he has authored numerous books, including Detention and Denial, The Case for Candor After Guantanamo, Law and the Long War, The Future of Justice in the Age of Terror, Star, a reassessment, and confirmation wars, preserving independent courts in angry times. He also has a black belt in Taekwondo. <laughs> Our second speaker will be Stephen I. Vladek, a professor of law and the associate dean for scholarship at American University Washington College of Law. His teaching and research focus on federal jurisdiction, constitutional law, national security law, international criminal law, and the role of the federal courts in the war on terrorism. He was part of the legal team that successfully challenged the Bush administration's use of military tribunals at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, in Hamden versus Rumsfeld. He is a co-editor of Aspen Publishers' leading national security and counterterrorism law casebooks. He is a member of the American Law Institute, a senior editor of the Journal of National Security, Law and Policy, and a senior contributor to the Lawfare blog, among a host of other positions, scholarships, awards, and clerkships. He is a graduate of Yale Law School. Our third speaker will be Rosa Brooks, a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. Her teaching and research focus on international law, national security, and constitutional law, among other subjects. She writes a weekly column for foreign policy, serves as a short senior fellow at the New America Foundation, and previously served as counselor to Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, where for her efforts, she received the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service. She has served as a senior advisor at the State Department, consultant for Human Rights Watch, a fellow at the Carr Center at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, a board member of Amnesty International USA, and associate professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, among other positions. She is also a graduate of Yale Law School. Our final speaker will be Benjamin H. Friedman, a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics. He's the author of dozens of op-eds and journal articles and co-editor of two books, including Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. He is a graduate of Dartmouth College and a PhD candidate in political science 
and an affiliate of the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And with that, I turn the podium over to Benjamin Wittes. So thanks for having me. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, I'm sorry? The podium's yours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This seems excessive. Um, thanks for having me. I, um, I, I'm, I'm stunned by the number of people who turn out for a lunchtime discussion of drones. And I, I'm, I suppose there's no way to figure out the answer to this question, but I'd be really curious whether the same number would have turned out before the Rand Paul filibuster or whether this has sort of is a reflection of the sort of crystallized moment where suddenly something is, uh, you know, at the center of public attention in a way that uh, it hadn't been before. Um, there's a lot to debate and discuss here, um, but and some of it involves legality and some of it involves policy. Uh, but before you know, we do that, I think it is worth actually taking a giant step back and zooming the lens way, way out and asking ourselves the question, why are we so obsessed with drones all of a sudden? Um, and I can make a pretty good case that the fascination um, is both a little bit misplaced and a little bit bizarre. Um, and so I want to, first of all, do that. Um, that is, try to tell why we sh why, all the good reasons why there are a lot of interesting issues to discuss, and they're not centrally about drones. Um, and then try to focus a little bit on why it is that this issue is capturing the degree of public imagination that it is. Um, look, a drone is a weapon. Um, and it's not fundamentally different from any other weapon um, in the sense that it is uh, capable of killing people at a considerable distance. We've actually been able to do that for a while now. It makes the user, the bearer of it, significantly safer than other weapons platforms previously, but not significantly safer than, say, the person who launches a Tomahawk cruise missile or, for that matter, the pilot of, uh, you know, a, 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 an F-16 or a bomber in, in the context of a, 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 you know, a raid on a sort of congenial piece of territory. Um, and so, and it has certain advantages, you know, from a, from a humanitarian point of view. It, its ability to loiter over areas make it and sort of watch the people there, make it able to be discriminating uh, in targeting in a way that no previous weapon we've really had enables you to do this. And so the first question is, why aren't we sitting here saying, what a wonderful thing, drone warfare, uh, it allows you to be more lethal and more careful at the same time. Um, and yet we're not. That's not the sort of reason why everybody's hosting events all of a sudden. And, and Rand Paul didn't take the floor to filibuster uh, Brennan's nomination because, you know, we're not using enough drones and we're not being careful enough, right? And so the question is, why does this technology produce the degree of anxiety that it produces, given that you really could argue that it's really, you know, 100 years ago, um, we started thinking about ways to make 
uh, weapons more discriminating, protect civilians better. It's not to say drones do it perfectly by any means, but they certainly do it better than other airstrikes, you know? And we started thinking about how do you improve lethality while protecting those you don't want to kill better. And if you compare, you know, in World War II, I, I forget the exact numbers, but the, 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 the poundage of, of ammunition that it took, of ordnance that it took out to drop out of a plane to destroy one target um, was just astonishing. You know, the amount of just the volume of bombs, the weight of bombs you would have to drop to reliably destroy one target. And the ones that didn't hit the target were hitting other things, right? And so you can really make an argument that this is kind of the, uh, not the answer, but the beginnings of the answer to what the international human rights community has been asking for and agitating for, and rightly so in my judgment, for you know, decades and decades, which is greater discrimination. In other words, targeted killing, the opposite of targeted killing is not, you know, it, it's untargeted killing, right? And that's not a good thing for those of us who want greater discrimination. Um, so let me pose three reasons that I think that we've all fixated, or many people have fixated in a negative way on drones. Um, the first is that they are big, scary flying robots, and that's weird, right? And there's just some, there's a degree of technological mystification uh, that is a, a very substantial component of the way we react to them. And you know, some of the phrases that Malu quoted uh, in the introduction are sort of illustrative of this. It's, it's a, you know, we, we're not holding events on you know, gun warfare or AK-47 warfare. And part, you know, part of the reason for that is just that we're not fascinated by that technology in the same way. And there's something, very odd, very strange, very different about the flying robot, even if the flying robot is actually doing something very similar to what you would otherwise be doing with a manned aircraft. Uh, second issue um, is a pretty pervasive confusion of the platform and the policy. Um, there are many ways to targetedly kill somebody. Um, and drones are only one of them. As we saw in the Osama bin Laden raid, they're not the only one. They're not the only, the person's no less dead if you insert a, you know, a SEAL team and kill them at point blank range with a, with a rifle. Um, but we have mapped onto our larger debate about targeted killing a particular weapon. And a lot of what, we're, what we should be debating in terms of the question of when do we want to target individuals with lethal force, and when do we think it's lawful to do that, when do we think it's a good idea to do that, we have given a name to that problem, and the name is drones. And I, I would submit that this is a very um, counterproductive intellectual move on our part as a society, that you know, one question is, when do you want to be doing this, if at all? And a second question is, if you want to be doing this, what's the optimal weapon system with which to do it? And the answers to those questions may be you want to do it very, very infrequently, and when you want to do it, the perfect weapon to use is a, is a Reaper, right? Or it may be that you want to do it very commonly, um, but 
you want to use humans on the ground whenever possible for, for whatever reason. But that's not what I believe, by the way. Um, so I want to argue for a much, much greater, more disciplined separation of platform and policy. Um, and then the third item, which I think is, and I'm going to stop after that and turn it over to Steve. I, I, I think the third item, which I, I think is a bit of a puzzle, actually, um, is that there's something inherent about ha having gotten what we want, which is to say much, much greater, much more effective discrimination that makes the weapon system feel like something other than a military weapon system. And let me, let me spell that out a little bit. You know, when you're bombing a city, nobody kind of doubts that there's a war going on. But when you get down to the level of I'm targeting him, but not everybody else at the table, and I'm going to hover a drone up there long enough to figure out when everybody leaves and get only the target. And we can do stuff that's not quite that, but it's remarkably close to that now. There's something that doesn't feel like war about that anymore. And people respond to it as, as a kind of extrajudicial killing. Um, and people use words like assassination. Um, and people use words like, you know, extrajudicial killing, right? Which we would never use when you describe, you know, for example, the downing of Admiral Yamamoto's plane in, in, in World War II. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think one of the, one of the paradoxes here and is that the more, the closer you get to that holy grail of perfect targeting, where you can target only the enemy, the more it comes to look like something other than conventional military targeting at all. I don't know how you resolve that issue. I, I think that's actually one of the central challenges that we face, is to figure out what warfare means in an era of highly individuated targeting. The problem with podiums is it reminds me how tall I am. Um, so let me say uh, uh, thank you very much to uh, Malu for the invitation to be here today, to my, my co-panelists, to all of you. I, uh, I'm going to pick up, I think, where Ben left off um, and suggest that I think one of the hardest questions raised by this whole conversation is one that I think Ben's uh, comments suggest an answer to that I'm not sure I agree with, but I'm not sure I disagree with either, and let me put it this way. So Ben's theory about the importance of separating the platform from the policy is that drones are functionally interchangeable uh, with other forms of lethal force. And I guess the question is whether we're sure that's true. Um, that is to say, are we sure that this president, that any president, would use the other options on the table um, to use lethal force against a valid target, assuming it's a valid target, if drones weren't available, right? That is to say, are drones actually changing the conversation insofar as their cost or lack thereof, both in terms of money and human capital, um, might tip the scales for the executive branch, for the military, to push in favor of attacking a particular target versus not? And I think that's a question we don't have enough data on to answer. But if the answer is yes, if the answer is that drones are actually empowering, um, I actually think then we might have to have a separate conversation about the policy and the platform merging. But let's assume that Ben's right. Let's assume that, in fact, at least for purposes of legal discussions, there is no material difference between using a drone, uh, using a bomb, using a tomahawk missile, using any other lawful form of, of force. It seems to me part of why we are so interested 
in drones uh, is because in many ways they're actually a microcosm of three distinct conversations that we want to have uh, but that we're not very good at having, that we don't really have the, the terminology or the capacity to have. And so we've, we've adopted drones um, as the mechanism, as the method through which to have this, this discussion. So let me briefly tell you what I think those three conversations are, and let me lay out what I think some of the questions are as applied to drones. So the three conversations first um, is the question of exactly who and where we are at war. Uh, or say, against whom and where are we at war? And so what I mean by that is, part of the things that drones bring to the surface um, is the extent to which we are using military force in parts of the world where I think many Americans would be surprised to learn that we're using military force, uh, and that we might be using military force against at least some folks many Americans are surprised to learn we're using force against. And so I think part of what pushed Senator Paul to the floor of the Senate um, was the concern that indeed this force might even be, in theory, applicable at home. Uh, right, that um, to the extent the government is claiming the power to use drones, it might also therefore think it could use drones on the home front. Um, and I think we've seen again in the last week renewed blurring uh, by certain members of Congress uh, of the distinction between the military paradigm uh, and treating at least domestic acts of terrorism as crimes. Uh, but I suspect that will come up again later. So the first piece is, where is the war? Um, and in this regard, it's important to remember what Congress has and has not said on the subject. So in September of 2001, Congress enacted the Authorization for Use of Military Force, the AUMF in our shorthand. Um, and the AUMF is primarily targeted at those who are responsible for 9-11. Uh, it, de it delegates to the president the power to identify those persons or organizations he believes were responsible for 9-11, and it authorizes the use of military force against those persons and organizations. And for the better part of the past decade, there hasn't been a lot of uh, debate, even at the margins, about just how far that goes. There's been widespread consensus that Al-Qaeda is a group that falls within the scope of that authorization. There's been at least relatively stable consensus that for a time the Taliban was a group that fell within that uh, definition. Um, and even today, there's at least some uh, view held widely by the government especially that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, uh, is part of that definition. But drones are being used increasingly at the margins of the authority that Congress authorized in 2001. Uh, drones are being used in Yemen. Drones are being used in Africa. Drones are being used in Pakistan. Uh, and so I think part of the, the interest in drones is the extent to which it illuminates just how unclear we are what the geographic limits of the AUMF are, what the organizational limits of the AUMF are, uh, what the citizenship limits of the AUMF are. I think that's part of why we've seen so much interest in this conversation. So that's the first point, right? Drones as a microcosm for the where is the war conversation. In that regard, I think you're, you're going to start to see a lot in the papers about uh, suggestions from the government and from some in Congress that the AUMF is becoming increasingly outdated, uh, increasingly obsolete, as we have actually largely succeeded in destroying the core of al-Qaeda as we are increasingly disengaging from using military force on the ground in Afghanistan. And so this is part of the next conversation in American national security policy. What happens after the AUMF? Who will we be at war with? Should Congress provide new authority? What will drones have to say about that? I think that's why we see this interaction. All right, the second piece of this uh, is the question of oversight. Uh, because related to the limits of the uh, scope of our use of force authority is how those limits will be enforced. 
Um, I think it's safe to say Congress has not been particularly aggressive thus far in enforcing those limits, even where there have been concerns raised on the home front. Uh, a good example of this is the debate over the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, where a number of libertarians and liberals came together to raise serious concerns that the bill might authorize the detention of uh, US citizens or others arrested within the United States. Um, and so the way Congress solved this problem was not to bar such detention, but merely to emphasize in section 1021E of the NDAA that they weren't changing the status quo for those people. Never mind that no one can agree on what the status quo is. Um, right? That is the most Congress has said on the subject in 12 years. Um, and so I think oversight on the Hill has not exactly been forthcoming. What about judicial oversight? So there's been a fair amount of case law in the Guantanamo habeas cases about the scope of the AUMF, about who may be detained under the AUMF, for how long, under what circumstances. But that's been unique to the context of habeas, of claims by individuals who are in US custody and who, thanks to the Supreme Court's 2008 decision in the Boumediene case, are constitutionally entitled to raise those claims in the federal court. There has to date been no other litigation in other cases arising outside the United States trying to establish the outer bounds of the government's authority. Anwar al-Awlaki, his parents actually brought a suit before he was killed, seeking to get some clarification on when and where the government could use lethal force even against its own citizens. That suit was thrown out on political question grounds. There's now a Bivens suit pending, a suit for damages, uh, after he has been killed. Um, if I were you, I would not hold my breath that the court in that case is going to reach the merits. Um, right? So oversight, at least in its current form, is not working. So how might we fix that? Um, and this is actually where I've been, I think, a little bit alone. You've heard some proposals out there for an ex-ante drone court. But again, I think this misses the point that this is not about drones. Right? I think the better way, if you really wanted to see vigorous oversight of our uses of force, would be to push Congress to actually create some kind of damages remedy um, for those who believe they have been wrongly targeted. Um, now you say, well, if they've been wrongly targeted, they're probably dead um, and cannot bring these claims. But we, of course, have the model of wrongful death actions in our tort law. It would be easy enough for Congress to borrow that. And it would allow for the development of a body of law that actually limited the government uh, to the terms of the authorizations Congress has passed. It would allow for more uh, evaluation, more evolution um, in answering these really hard questions. I still wouldn't hold my breath. Um, but it's at least something to think about if you really want to pursue reform, if you really want to push for something to harmonize uh, the government's actions with the law. Um, at the very least, right, there should be more transparency. Because um, one of the hardest things about this conversation, um, and one of the biggest issues that we face, is that we actually aren't even sure what the government thinks the limits of its authority are. What I think the white paper highlighted for so many um, was that the government's rationales, at least the ones they're making public, are at once way too superficial um, and way too specific. Uh, so what I mean by that, right, is the white paper talks all about a US citizen, when of course the overwhelming majority of targeted killing operations involve non-citizens. Right? The white paper talks about circumstances that could be so general that, to paraphrase a certain junior senator from Texas, they might even include someone sitting at a cafe somewhere in the United States. 
Um, right? That's the amount of detail we've gotten from the government. It's hard to have this conversation when so much remains shrouded in secrecy. So the second, the second microcosm, the second piece of this, is how drones are about oversight. Last, and I'll make this point very brief, the third piece of the drone conversation is precedent. Right? So it's one thing to say when we are the only country in the world that appears to have the technology to carry out these operations, we may not be so worried about the consequences. We may not be so worried about things coming home to roost. Um, but increasingly, I think it is a very serious concern that we make sure we are not setting a precedent pursuant to which other countries who, if they don't already have this technology, will soon, would claim similar, if not broader, powers. Um, and I think that's not about drones specifically. It's about the use of force on the territory of a foreign sovereign. Right? And so that's why I think we see how there are these three very hard, very important, very serious conversations that intersect when it comes to drones, but that drones won't really resolve. At the end of the day, it seems to me, we have to break out two categories of cases. There are the cases where Congress is authorizing the use of force, right? and that's where the AUMF comes in. And then there are the remaining cases where the president might act in self-defense. And it seems to me that the amount of nuance needed to have this conversation properly is part of why it's been so hard this, uh, thus far to have, to, to, to have discussions like these. It's part of why I think Senator Paul's filibuster, although well-intentioned, was, I think, in the end, um, rather unhelpful. Right? Because at the end of the day, getting the Attorney General to say, no, I will not authorize a drone strike against a US citizen sitting in a cafe who's not engaged in combat is a lovely act of political theater. When it comes to answering these three really hard sets of questions, it doesn't get us any further. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Malou. Thanks, everybody. It's terrific to be here. Um, I, think that, I think that it falls to me to make the mandatory uh, drone joke, which is that uh, we're all in violent agreement and we're in danger of beginning to drone on. Uh, 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 um, but uh, I, I'm going to also pretty much take up where my two fellow panelists have, have left off, leaving, leaving all of the answers to Ben over here to figure out when I'm done. But so, so let me sort of review where we are and where I think we're, we're all in agreement. And um, uh, first of all, uh, up to a point, the issue is not drones. Uh, and I think Ben did a very, very, very useful job in sort of laying out the ways in which uh, you know, we shouldn't get fixated and obsessed about this particular weapons delivery platform. Um, I've, I've, I always love to quote uh, one of the, well, one of the reasons I think that people say sometimes that they don't like drones is that the idea of this sort of long distance killing seems somehow unsavory, it seems sort of unsporting or unchivalrous or just somehow wrong. And uh, I always like to note that this has been an anxiety that has accompanied virtually every advance in the history of warfare. Uh, when the uh, longbow and the crossbow were developed, for instance, in the medieval period, uh, they were condemned for the same reason. In fact, at the Second Lateran Council of Pope Innocent II in 1139, condemned, uh, prohibited under anathema that murderous art of crossbowmen and archers, which is hateful to God. Uh, although it was actually prohibited only with regard to uh, using them against Christians. Um, so some things do stay similar. Uh, uh, in the early 1600s, uh, uh, Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, took a similar view of the 
uh, use of artillery, which he called a devilish invention, allowing a base cowardly hand to take the life of the bravest gentleman with bullets, much like drones, coming nobody knows how or from whence. So these are anxieties that I think have very often accompanied changes in weapons technologies. But, but obviously, as Ben says, if you're a military commander, of course you want to develop and you want to make use of technologies that enable you to protect your own forces while inflicting targeted harm on the enemy. You know, we don't, we don't, none of us think that we should take the body armor off our troops in order to even the playing field, obviously. Uh, so in that sense, drones don't present a lot of new issues. That said, uh, I, think that, I think that Steve has also quite rightly drawn our attention to the fact that it's not, the technology is not completely irrelevant. It's relevant insofar as drone technologies lower the costs, or at any rate, lower the perceived costs of using lethal force across borders in particular. Um, they lower the costs in the sense that they, they means there's no near-term, short-term danger to US personnel who may be sitting thousands of miles away. Uh, they lower the cost because they're, they're perceived as just being cheaper than the equivalent manned aircraft might be, for instance. Uh, and they lower the cost precisely because they do a better job than most other technologies enable us to do in distinguishing between civilians and combatants, that, that we're more able, because they spend more time on target, et cetera, we are more able to make sure that we don't end up killing innocent people who we don't intend to kill. And that, too, I think lowers the perceived cost of using force, because if you're a decision maker, whether you're at the CIA or the Pentagon or the White House, uh, you want to make sure if you're going to use military force in a foreign country, uh, you don't want to bankrupt the nation, you don't want to kill a lot of Americans, and you don't want to kill a lot of innocent foreigners in another country either. And to the extent that this technology does or at any rate is perceived to lower all those costs and risks, it then lowers the threshold for decisions to use force. If it's, if it's, if it's cheap and low risk, why not do it a little bit more? Uh, that what you tend to have happen inevitably is the, the political calculus simply changes. And uh, actions, that might, that actions that might seem to have certain justifications but high costs, you might not do, even if you consider them justified, uh, actions that seem to have solid justifications and very low costs, well, why not? And that's the reason that we have seen a significant expansion of the use of targeted killings, predominantly, although yes, not exclusively, by a drone. I mean, in theory, you could have targeted killing by slingshot, right? It doesn't really matter the technology, but the technology enables the increased use of a particular uh, approach. Uh, and targeted killing, you know, uh, referring to the killing of specific individuals, whether identified by name or as a result of their observed patterns of activity in a foreign country, inside the territory of a foreign sovereign state. So what we have seen over the course of the last uh, just over a decade has been the use of drones for targeted killing purposes has gone from occasional uh, and restricted largely to uh, uh, target those who were perceived as extremely high value targets high up in the Al-Qaeda food chain to increasingly the use of targeted killing uh, both in a more and more geographic regions, uh, expanding from Pac Yemen and Pakistan to Somalia and perhaps to other states as well, such as Mali and the Philippines. We've also seen the use of targeted killing to uh, uh, go after a wider and wider range of potential targets who are more and more distant from 
you know, Al-Qaeda Central and the upper echelons of Al-Qaeda Central. Uh, several analyses, both by the New America Foundation, which I'm a fellow, but also several newspaper analyses that have uh, looked at, apparently, at some leaked uh, CIA documents have concluded that the percentage of uh, uh, those killed in targeted killings in recent years, uh, that only a very small fraction of those killed have been identifiable as senior level Al-Qaeda operatives or even operatives in associates of Al-Qaeda. And larger and larger numbers are you know, unknown foreign militants suspected of being affiliated with an affiliate of an affiliate. Uh, that's the other issue here. as, as, as Steve noted that increasingly the, the range of organizations being targeted have borne less and less of a, a connection uh, to uh, those that the authorization to use military force was focused on, e.g. those responsible for 9-11. So we look at groups such as al-Shabaab in Somalia. Not a nice group of people, definitely, but not nobody appears to think that they were responsible in any way for 9-11 had any complicity in that, nor does anybody particularly think, seem to think that they pose any serious threat to the United States, and yet we have used this, these technologies to target al-Shabaab members in Somalia, reportedly. And I say, of course, reportedly, because as, as, as my colleagues have also noted, uh, there is, there's not a heck of a lot of transparency here. Uh, so this is one of those you know uh, worst-kept secrets in Washington, where on the one hand, we, we have seen the uh, president, the attorney general, the State Department legal advisor, the head of the CIA, and many others have publicly spoken about uh, U.S. counter uh, U.S. targeted killing policy in broad outline, and indeed have occasionally happily taken credit for the elimination of particularly nasty people. But at the same time, in court filings, uh, when uh, civil rights groups or the families of of those targeted have sought to challenge uh, the policy or specific operations. Uh, the U.S. government has insisted that we can neither confirm nor deny that any such program or any such targeting has actually taken place. Uh, so we have this sort of oddity of how do you even meaningfully understand or critique or praise, for that matter, a program that is shrouded in, in so much mystery that, in effect, the equivalent of a third war has gone covert. And, and one question I would raise would be, what are the costs to a democratic society when a large swathe of our foreign policy sort of vanishes into the covert realm? Um, I think, though, that uh, uh, there are two kinds of major costs we should be concerned about when we think about the evolution of US targeted killing policy. And the first category, I'd say, are strategic. Second category, I'd say, are rule of law related, although they, they inevitably these are blurry and they feed into each other. Uh, the strategic question, and, I, and I, this hasn't yet been discussed, but I think it's worth asking, uh, when we have this technology that enables us to engage in targeted killing far more frequently at lower and lower short-term risk, and we use it more and more, we expand the battlefield more and more, at some point you have to start asking yourself uh, the same question that Donald Rumsfeld famously asked during the Iraq conflict, which is, are we creating new terrorists faster than we can kill them? Because obviously targeted killings have ripple effects in the, in the regions in which they occur. They kill people who may be bad people, but who have children and families and relatives and friends just like all the rest of us. Uh, they kill innocent people at times as well, of course. They create instability, they create fear. They, we, and we do not know, we do not have an adequate calculus or an adequate, adequate government or public procedure for attempting to uh, do a kind of a cost-benefit analysis of uh, how much are we gaining 
like, you know, one fewer putative bad guys in, on Earth, how much are we losing by the risk of sowing resentment, anti-American sentiment, and instability? We don't know the answer to that. Uh, and I think one of my military friends calls drone strikes a, a tactic in search of a strategy. And frankly, I think that's, that's an accurate statement, that we have sort of lost sight of that broader strategic question of what are we doing? You know, how, how far down the Al-Qaeda chain will we go? How far away from Al-Qaeda to the associates of associates of associates are we willing to go? When does this stop making sense? When does this do more harm than good? So that's the strategic question I would put out there. Uh, the rule of law question, uh, I think, is, is, is really a hard, hard, hard one. Um, rule of law, well, you know, we've all read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We know what that is. I won't go into academic detail, right? But basically, the rule of law is what protects you from having the government take you, take your property, kill you, lock you up without some sort of fair process, without your knowing in advance what the set of rules are to which you will be held accountable, without an opportunity to say, hey, wait a minute, that wasn't me, it was that other guy, I'm innocent, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's something that's pretty important. It's important in this country, and it's important globally. It's uh, the rule of law principles are reflected not only in our own foundational documents, but in international human rights law, including treaties to which the US is a party, that are by and large congruent with our own domestic uh, rights protections. Um, so enter, enter targeted killings. Well, I'll give you, here's the, here's the problem, and I think Steve has already highlighted this. Um, in 1976, uh, uh, Orlando Letelier, the former Chilean defense minister who'd been ousted in a military coup, uh, had moved to the United States. Uh, this was following a period of imprisonment and torture at the hands of the Chilean military junta. Uh, he'd moved to the United States, but the Chilean uh, government wasn't terribly happy with his uh, outspoken criticism of the military government. And so in 1976, they assassinated him uh, by planting a car bomb in his car uh, here in Washington, D.C., and the car exploded, and uh, Letelier and his American assistant, uh, a woman named Ronnie Moffat, were both killed. Um, we called this a, an assassination, of course. We called this murder. We called this an extrajudicial execution. Um, now, in ordinary terms, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, in or, when we walk down this, if you walk outside of here and you, you, know, you pick up your your little iPhone and you bash somebody over the head until they're dead, uh, the police are gonna come, uh, you're gonna be arrested, you're gonna be put in jail, you're gonna be tried, and you're probably gonna be convicted, and you're gonna go to jail because you murdered someone, we call that homicide. Uh, and if you say, oh yes, but officer, that person was my enemy, that's, that's not gonna cut a lot of ice, right? <laughs> um, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't. That's what ordinary rule, that's what it means to live under the rule of law in ordinary circumstances. But. Not all circumstances are ordinary, as we know. When there is an armed conflict, a different set of legal rules apply. The law of war applies rather than ordinary law. We lawyers call it uh, lex specialis. Special law applies in special circumstances in contrast to the lex generalis, the general law that applies in general circumstances. So when there is a war, you're not only permitted, but in certain circumstances, you're, you're obligated, and indeed you may be shot for cowardice or refusal to obey orders if you don't go off and try to kill somebody else. Right, so the law of war permits us to do things, uh, uh, to take away people's lives and liberty and so forth, uh, without the kinds of protections that we ordinarily consider to be required. That's fine, that doesn't necessarily threaten any rule of law principle. Um, as long as we know when the law of war applies, right? 
Uh, because if we, if we say, well, there's this special law for special and exceptional circumstances, and it applies in these special and, ex special and exceptional circumstances, and we know what those are, uh, be warned, you're on notice, that's where the war is, that's who's in the war, et cetera, not a problem. Problem is that right now we don't know, and this I think is the, this is the, this is the deep issue and the most troubling and difficult part of this whole debate. Uh, is that you know in the context of a traditional battlefield, World War II, even something like Libya, we, we, there's not a lot of doubt as to whether or where there is a state of armed conflict. You can see it. There are big armies full of uniformed soldiers. The states are saying, yes, hello, we're, we're having an armed conflict with each other. Here's when it started. Uh, here's what's going on. Here's who's participating. So we know, we know where the conflict is. We have a sort of spatial and geographical sense of where the conflict is. We know when it started. We know that it will end. We may not know when, but clearly it will end. We know who is a party to the conflict. We have a reasonable ability to tell the difference between who's a combatant and who is not a combatant, between who's a civilian who is not participating in hostilities and who's a civilian who is participating in hostilities. And so the law of armed conflict is going to apply there. We have this set of rules that create far fewer constraints on the state use of force than in ordinary peacetime. And that's OK. You know, that doesn't fundamentally undermine the rule of law. But enter geographically diffuse transnational terrorism by non-state actors, and all of our ability to meaningfully distinguish between armed conflict, not armed conflict, and thus between when the ordinary legal regime with all those protections does and should apply, and the extraordinary special circumstances in which poof, those protections go out the window and that's all right, apply. We can't do it anymore. It becomes extraordinarily hard. And I think that is the deep issue with regard to target killing. This is an issue I can, I can go on and on and on. I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna make that joke. Um, this is an issue I can go on and on and on about, um, but I will, I, will, I will try to keep it very, very short here because uh, I know there's a lot of other things to say. But I think this is why it is so extraordinarily difficult to even talk about this because we're often using different vocabularies. So the Orlando Letelier case. Imagine the Chilean government redescribing it today, and I think this was the concern that, Stephen, that Steve was getting at when he talks about international precedent. When our government says to the world, um, world, um, we decide where there's an armed conflict. You may not think it's an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda or with Al-Shabaab, but we think it is. Uh, so we decide where the armed conflict is. Oh, and we decide who's a combatant. Uh, and if we want to switch from the law of armed conflict to a different legal regime, which often gets blurred together in the administration's reasoning, the international law of self-defense, we also decide what's a threat to the US, what's an imminent threat. We decide what degree and nature of force is necessary, is proportionate. Uh, and we do that unilaterally, and nobody can tell us different. When the US says that to the rest of the world, it's pretty hard not to assume that that's going to come back to bite us, right? Because imagine the, the Orlando Letelier incident occurring today, right? Uh, what would the Chilean military government, were it still extant, be saying today? They would, of course, we've just told them what to say. They would be saying, well, you know, you're right, United States. Sorry about that sovereignty violation. Um, but we concluded that you were, uh, you know, Orlando Letelier was, was a combatant. He was an enemy in an armed conflict that we have against the Chilean insurgency, which was indeed going on at the time. Even if he wasn't, he was simply a threat to Ch Chile on self-defense principles. And in terms of your sovereignty, we regretfully concluded that you were unwilling or unable to take action against him while you were harboring him. 
right there in Washington, D.C. And we told you we didn't want you to harbor him, and you said, well, sorry, we don't care. And so we, of course, uh, uh, you know, took appropriate action consistent with the international law of armed conflict and consistent with the international law of self-defense. And we took the uh, military action necessary to eliminate that threat. And this was, therefore, a lawful targeting. Uh, it was a lawful target. It was lawful. Uh, sorry about the sovereignty thing, but unwilling and unable, don't harbor bad guys if you don't want us to use force inside your country. And it's really irrelevant, once again, whether it was a car bomb or a drone. You know, car bombs going to be a little easier for most states. Uh, it's not going to be very easy to use drones against the United States. Uh, we have pretty good air counter, you know, air defenses. Um, but nevertheless, and we would not, we wouldn't be able to respond. You know, what what could we possibly say in response? Well, we disagree with you. We didn't think he was a threat. Well, they'd say, well, you know. Uh, we, we, did, we reviewed some secret intelligence sources that we can't share with you. And we decided he was a threat. And, and what would we say? We don't have any, anything, any mechanism for responding to that. Uh, you know, so the Vladimir Putin, remember the poor guy in uh, London who was killed with you know, radioactive sushi or whatever it is. We have just handed every despot in the world a little playbook for explaining why it's acceptable for them to kill dissidents in foreign countries, um, dissidents, reformers, et cetera. So at the end of the day, of course, if you say this to any of my many friends still in the administration, they say, they say well, we wouldn't do that kind of thing. And I believe them. You know, I believe them. These are, these are good people. I believe them when they say that they make these decisions with extraordinary care, gravity, et cetera. Uh, and that they, they hold themselves to the most exacting standards. But the problem is, as, as, our, as our forebears, uh, who framed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, uh, knew very well, uh, if your life depends on the goodwill and good faith of government officials, you don't have a lot of security. You know, that's, that, that's not the rule of law. That's nothing even close to the rule of law. It's easier to raise this problem than it is to solve it, of course, because the, the, the instability of the legal framework is not the result of a conspiracy to take away our rights, right? It's a result of actual changes in the nature of technologies, changes in the nature of warfare, changes in the nature of threats. So I don't know quite what the answer is, but I do think that the answer has to be, among other things, to get away from this sort of speaking in parallel to each other, where one set of people is talking about the law of war and the other set of people is talking about uh, ordinary law and criminal law, and they can't ever have a conversation because they're operating in completely different legal landscapes, completely different legal paradigms, each of which is internally coherent, but they are mutually consistent. Right? They're mutually inconsistent, excuse me. Um, what we do about that, I don't know. I think in the long term, what we need to do is we need to figure out some sort of middle ground that is both rights respecting, rule of law respecting, but that takes into account the new kinds of threats that have emerged that didn't exist 60, 70, 80 years ago. Uh, that's the long-term stuff. In the nearer term, uh, and I'll save most of my thoughts on that for, for the discussion, I also know that Ben can talk to, speak to that a little bit. In the nearer term, I certainly think that there are some things that can be done to improve greater transparency. I, I think Steve's... Uh, 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 damages uh, cause of action uh, is, is potentially a very interesting idea, one that might bring a, great, a good deal of needed discipline and potentially transparency to this. Uh, so there's a lot that can be done, uh, and I'll save that for uh, our future discussion. And now let Ben um, solve all these problems that I've raised.
All right, uh, the danger in going last is, of course, uh, being sort of redundant. So I, uh, unfortunately, will uh, cover some of the same ground that, that uh, others did, particularly Rosa. But um, I, I come at it from a different perspective, which is more political science realism. And uh, so you'll, you'll get some of that. I think um, Rosa asked a bunch of questions. One of them, uh, the most important one in my view, was why not? Um, and um, I think that's the issue with drones. We have wars that are justified largely on the basis of why not? The problem uh, with drones isn't that they're a bad technology, it's that they're a good technology, they're a great technology. Drones particularly married to precision guided munitions are a great technology and they make war easy. Um, they make it whimsical and that erodes democracy. Um, Congress ought to restrain uh, the president's exercise of war powers more, and I'm not talking just about drones, I'm talking about what happened in, in, uh, in Libya and the use of uh, special operations forces around the world. Um, but uh, the lack of restraint, the lack of domestic restraint, legal restraint in the United States is a consequence of good fortune. The fact that our power, safety, and technological prowess allow us to fight wars, especially from the air, at almost no cost to ourselves. And that's a, a good problem to have, but still a problem. Democracy uh, functions poorly without obvious costs. Uh, the absence of, of conflict in our, in our politics prevents real debate and allows ill-conceived policies. Uh, you know, so like I said, we have, I think, whimsical wars fought in, in pursuit of perfect safety. And if the standard is perfect safety and that's what we're seeking, uh, we're gonna be at war uh, forever. Um, so I, I don't think the broad drone warfare we have is gonna ruin us. Uh, if it were unsustainable, it would stop. Unsustainable things stop, but I think it erodes liberty. I think it spreads antipathy and it threatens to suck us more tragically into wars we could avoid. Um, and there's no real solution for that, but uh, we can improve matters to, uh, by pushing for the war to end, legally and factually, by resisting the threat inflation about uh, terrorism that justifies a lot of this, and by encouraging Congress uh, to more jealously guard its, its war powers, and by making uh, war's costs more evident through institutional mechanisms uh, that would encourage the formation of anti-war interests. Um, so we heard about the authorization of military force from 2001, which was rather specific and uh, how it's uh, been used, I think along with the constitutionally based uh, self-defense powers the president has, as a warrant basically to kill or detain uh, jihadist terrorists and Islamic insurgents and whoever uh, are in their midst uh, across South Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. Now in theory, uh, the law, the AUMF, has been used even more broadly than that. The last two administrations have adopted almost limitless interpretation of uh, what the law allows. Um, of course, it's hard to say how limitless uh, this administration refuses to share, as we heard, its reasoning on this with most of Congress, with most of Congress, let alone with the public. Um, in that memo, that summary um, Office of Legal Counsel memo that leaked in February, we learned a little bit more about the rules the administration uses to designate U.S. citizens for killing, such as the fact that, you know, the imminent standard was defined down into nothingness because it was defined basically as a part of the definition of terrorist groups. Terrorists are, by definition, imminently seeking to kill us, so imminence, the president says they're a terrorist, that means the threat's imminence, imminent, so imminence is gone. Um, and, but I think you know, the, the standards in that memo, this three-part test the White House says it has for uh, if they can kill a US citizen, um, 
I think it, it's actually, uh, all the debate about that is a little bit misplaced. For one, the, the memo wasn't a minimum standard uh, for what a, was allowed under US or international law. It was sort of self-assurance that what the administration was already doing was okay legally. And besides that, the rules are not law, but a bureaucratic process. Uh, and the administration says courts shouldn't interfere, at least uh, initially, maybe they're changing their mind. They said, Congress, we don't need any new authority or changed authority. And uh, so there's nothing stopping the president from uh, changing these rules in secret tomorrow, and of course, the next president from ignoring them entirely. So uh, what's important is to debate checks and balances, not the uh, content of these particular rules that the president set for himself. The real culprit of our broad and unrestricted war on terrorism, of which drones are just the most visible part, isn't the president and the lawyers that tell him he can do whatever he wants, uh, but uh, Congress, Congress that, that permits this. And as, as Jim Webb, uh, upon retirement, unfortunately, and uh, Rand Paul both said recently, Congress has abdicated its foreign policy or war powers. Uh, to use uh, Edwin Corwin's famous formulation, they failed to take up the Constitution's invitation to struggle with the president for the privilege of directing US foreign policy. And what they should have done and could still do is define the enemy more clearly. Uh, the president in that memo, or his lawyers, uh, followed the Bush administration in claiming uh, the power to attack Al-Qaeda and associated forces, but nobody knows what that means. I mean, Al-Qaeda was never the sort of global hierarchical organization of popular lore that was dispatching operatives and expertise around the world. It was always kind of a group of guys, to use Mark Sageman's phrase, and that's particularly true, of course, after the war. And, and uh, so what Al-Qaeda means in a legal sense is completely nebulous. People take up the term around the world, but it's not clear that they have any sort of operational link. A kid in a chat room might call himself that, and then does that mean we can uh, kill him anywhere in the world? Um, and uh, associated forces, of course, is even a, even a vaguer thing, uh, especially in the hands of uh, creative uh, attorneys. So um, if we're going to uh, continue this war, Congress ought to set some limits. Uh, by group or region or both, and then enforce them using the powers it has to stop the administration from getting money or getting appointees and using the powers it has. Um, even better, uh, with, the, with the war winding down in Afghanistan, Congress might simply put an end date on it, uh, on the AUMF, and, and say, look, you, know, you can rely on existing authorities, which are fairly plentiful and, to me, overbroad for the co covert action or the use of Joint Special Operations Command, which, of course, might be uh, operating all our drone programs, we're told soon. Um, that way, if the president wants to bomb people with drones or whatever in Mali or Yemen, he needs to come to Congress and get permission, which would hopefully spark debate. Uh, and, you know, if you don't want to go country by country, we could compromise. Maybe we could go uh, continent by continent or something like that. Um, ideally, Congress would also clean up and restrict the convoluted law and the covert use of force, uh, which I just mentioned, which is sort of this uh, legal swamp uh, where it's not clear what rules are governing uh, Joint Special Operations Command vis-a-vis -vis the CIA and uh, how oversight works. Um, Notice, I'm not saying exactly where strikes should occur, be authorized. I don't know because I don't have enough information. I don't think any of us in the public do. For example, uh, the administration asserts authority to attack Islamist insurgents in Somalia, as Rosa mentioned, al-Shabaab, uh, I guess because it's supposed to be an associate force of al-Qaeda. Um, but they've not attacked the United States. They did one bombing that we know of abroad, which is in Ethiopia, which has had troops uh, in Somalia. Um, and I, you know, I read in the Washington Post uh, in a column that the administration limits strikes 
um, in Somalia because they're worried, uh, sensibly, I think, that they might, by attacking insurgents, turn them into terrorists that attack the United States, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's good, but um, thanks to congressional indifference, we, I have to read that in a column in the Washington Post. There's no debate about it in Congress, um, and secrecy shrouds uh, the reasoning, and so we can't evaluate it. We lose the benefits of debate, uh, where participation of experts outside the government, like some of these people on the panel, dissent and the need for public justification ought to improve argument and policy. Uh, and that's why Congress has war powers. It's not this sort of constitutional formalism that says, you know, we do this because the Constitution says it. It's because the Constitution embodies a theory about how to produce good public policy. If you have to justify yourself in public, you're probably more often than not going to have a better policy than you would if you're sitting alone in a room with three people that you hired making policy yourself. Um, and that's uh, also a reason to avoid covert wars. You know, uh, Covert wars are sort of by definition not particularly well thought out wars um, because we've because they're covert, you can't really debate them. So we should do that as little as possible, right? Um, and um, checks and balances um, as lip service uh, are, are sort of um, worse than nothing because they pretend otherwise. So if we say, look, um, as um, Ben Wittes and uh, Jack Goldsmith and his uh, two other co-authors uh, have said, Let's give uh, the executive branch the discretion to say, here's a list of groups. Congress should give them the discretion to make a list of groups. We'll have a sunset on it, and um, then they can kill uh, any of those people they want. I think that's the guise of checks and balances, but really what it's doing is just outsourcing this thing uh, permanently and um, letting Congress off the hook. And that's that by giving us the idea that Congress is involved is probably worse than nothing. Um, so, uh, but... Um, it's not enough to just lecture Congress, I think, and say, do your job. We need to talk about the sources of their abdication uh, to intelligently discuss uh, reversing it. So real quickly, let me, uh, let me say what those are. How am I doing for time? OK. Um, one is partisanship. Uh, Lewis Fisher, uh, who studies these things, who's an adjunct to Cato, uh, long worked at the Congressional Research Service, uh, tells us that uh, partisan identity in Congress has risen in sort of usurped institutional identity, so that where senators or uh, authorizers um, used to say, well, I'm a, I'm a US senator, or I'm, a, I'm a, on an authorization committee, and, and jealously guard those particular powers, uh, now they are more likely to say, well, I'm a Democrat or Republican, so I'm gonna, my behavior vis-a-vis -vis the president is going to depend on that. Um, and I think that surely helps explain why uh, so few Democrats have complained about uh, the powers this president claims uh, to use drones and, and uh, other forces of lethal, other sources of lethal force. Uh, I think had it been Alberto Gonzalez as Attorney General who said, as Eric Holder did last year, presumably thinking of this leaked memo, that due process doesn't require judicial process, which surely is one of the most constitutionally offensive things ever uttered by an Attorney General. Due process doesn't require judicial process. The president does it alone in a room with three lawyers. Uh, if, if Alberto Gonzalez had said that, I think, uh, hopefully, the Democrats uh, would have gone bananas. Uh, but of course, it was, it was uh, barely an issue. Um, unfortunately, I think the, uh, the causes of rising uh, partisanship, which is a, a story for another day, are not easily manipulated. They're sort of structural parts of our democracy. 
But I think one limited solution is just to talk about it. You know, Jim Webb claims that um, some members of Congress don't even realize what all their powers are. So, you know, maybe the first thing is just to tell them uh, if that's true. I mean, you know, it's, it's a Jim Webb's uh, essay in the national interest. Anyway, uh, partisanship doesn't entirely explain things. I think. You know, even today, of course, we don't see too many Republicans following Rand Paul and their eagerness to restrain war powers. I mean, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, you know, uh, helped them out a little on the filibuster, but they're not particularly interested in limiting the wars. Uh, and just as Democrats were rather slow to restrain wars, so partisanship's limited. Which brings us to the next reason, I think, for this abdication, at least lately, which is fear of terrorism or at least fear of the political consequences of not being tough on it. Uh, polls show that people remain, in my opinion, far too concerned about terrorism. Large numbers continue to say that an attack is likely in the next couple months. And of course, we have months and months and months where there aren't attacks. So it's objectively wrong to say it's, it, we, we have all this evidence that it's not likely, even though we just had an attack in Boston. It's been a long time. So in a given set of months, it's not likely. So people are too afraid. Um, and I think that's uh, largely a result of the sort of overwrought fears that are being peddled uh, in public in the last decade, although that's, that's slowed a little bit of late. Of course, we've had uh, a lot of uh, speeches in public by officials saying that the threat is 10 feet tall, they're going to use WMD, uh, and surely that affects uh, public opinion. And I, I'd love to talk in Q&A about how that isn't true and the threat's really overwrought. Uh, but polls also show that terrorism has uh, happily uh, lost some of its salience. Almost nobody rates it among the top problems the country faces anymore. Um, and also there's little evidence that um, congressional votes on this issue drive too many votes. And I actually don't think the bombing uh, in Boston will change that very much. So um, I, I think it, it's possible that congressmen have a little bit more rope on this issue uh, than they think. And I think they also respond, what may be happening more is that they respond to the uh, ability of interests, uh, especially in their districts, to mobilize votes against them rather than opinion distribution. So the polls ladder matter less than the sort of interests. And uh, probably politicians are worried that um, given how hawkish all the experts in DC are, if something goes bad uh, in terms of terrorism, uh, opinion might be mount against them as a result of that. Uh, so um, they might be sort of reacting intuitively to that. Um, and so I think uh, if that's true, to the extent there's a solution here, it's to have more anti-war elites and interests and sort of different norms of behavior in Congress about war powers. But uh, I think that leads to sort of my third uh, explanation for abdication, which is historical. It's US power, US power and safety. Uh, the logic is uh, that um, traditionally foreign policy issues tend to rank low among voters' concerns and contribute little uh, to their voting decisions. Uh, so politicians have little incentive to cater to voters' foreign policy views, and they're relatively free to adopt uh, principle that is undemocratic stances. And, and the reason that citizens don't care very much that these issues aren't salient um, is because they shouldn't, because uh, we're so safe and powerful in the United States that the consequences of our policies uh, are very remote from people's interests in contrast to tax issues or uh, entitlements. Relative military power, uh, the ability to go places and do things without restraint, lets our leaders sort of indulge themselves in various ambitions um, and uh, schemes with limited consequences. I think, so what I'm saying is it's a realist type thing. Power checks power. And in the absence of restraint, power is exercised, is, is justified using justice or uh, safety. Uh, but really what's happening, as Thucydides famously put it, 
is uh, the strong do what they will and the weak endure what they must. And that, that's the difference between the United States and Chile today, okay? We're strong and they're weak, uh, relatively speaking. So we can do it and they can't. And uh, the legal rationale comes after. Um, the main reason we do drone strikes is because we lack a strong reason not to. It's cheap. Um, you know, for those Greek city-states that Thucydides was writing about in the Peloponnesian Wars, the consequences of wars that went wrong were uh, conquest, enslavement, mass death. For us, it's marginally higher tax rates subsidized by deficits. That's what the war in Iraq, or bad images on TV. And for the people who actually do the fighting, they have uh, norms of behavior in the military that say don't, don't complain too much. Um, so, uh, like I said, Americans don't care a lot about foreign policy because it doesn't hurt us collectively enough to stir interest uh, that, that move power to do something different. But that doesn't make it a good idea. I think there are uh, sort of slow costs associated with these policies that we're not capturing, even if they're just uh, moral in the sense of dead foreigners abroad. Um, and, and this isn't new to drones. This is a problem going back at least through much of the Cold War in the 1990s. Uh, this was a problem where we had uh, several military engagements with high-altitude military bombing, uh, which were sort of costless type wars uh, with very limited legal justification in the United States. Um, and so, so to be clear, the, uh, it's, it's not that drones uh, are an alternative to invasion and occupation. It's that they're an alternative to peace, okay? Drones are getting us into wars that we wouldn't otherwise have, I think. That's my argument. Um, so I, you know, over and over again, people say, well, look, we, we do, do you want to send in an army? The point is, no, I want to do nothing at all in, in most of these cases. Um, so I think it's, to finish up, I think it's not a big exaggeration to say that we're sort of in an era of iTunes wars, where we sort of have wars like we buy a song on iTunes, you know, it costs a dollar, why not? You know, and uh, I think we really have to ask ourselves what, as Rosa said, what that does uh, to our democracy, um, and uh, whether or not we're actually capturing all the costs, or if some of the costs are off the book, and if so, what do we do about it? One thing I think we could do is pay for wars, um, whether or not it's through a tax or a uh, offset, if we say, look, uh, wars, uh, uh, the uh, OCO funding can't be, uh, can't come through a, uh, can't come through deficit funding at all. It has to be paid for today through an offset or tax. It would make it a little harder to do these things whimsically. Of course, if the cost's so low, it with drone strikes, it wouldn't matter very much. And uh, so I think aside from that, the, the only solutions are bad things, which unfortunately we're experiencing. Unhappy experience in war and deficits, which make war generally less popular. And I think what we need to do is harness that sentiment uh, to create sort of an anti-war uh, ideology and sort of institutionalize it. Um, and uh, I think now, uh, while the time is relatively good, is the idea to, it's the time to sort of lock in the idea that wars should be hard to start. Thanks. Great. Thank you to all the speakers. Uh, before we turn to the audience, does anyone on the panel have anything to say or comment on or question any of any of the other panelists? Yes. I, I'd just like to push back briefly on on two points. Um, so the, the the first is this um, idea that drones uh, lower the uh, cost of the resort to force. And I, um, I don't know that to be untrue, but I am suspicious of the claim. Um, and I think if you look around the world at the areas in which the United States has used force in the form of drones, 
they are by and large not places where the, al the alternative hypothesis would have been in action. Uh, the major uses of drones in, numerically are in the uh, tribal areas of Pakistan, which is where Al-Qaeda retreated to after the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and in the face of the unwillingness or inability of the Pakistani government to do something about that problem, uh, and the unwillingness of the United States to, uh, or lack of eagerness to invade another country, um, we eventually went in in a significant way with drones. Now, I, I, this is not a testable proposition, but I actually don't believe that the long-term situation of a, a large group of people with whom Congress had actually authorized the use of force in Pakistan plotting attacks on the United States was sustainable. Um, and I think the probable alternative certainly was not law enforcement. It wasn't doing nothing. The probable alternative was a more significant air campaign, um, which would have been much more devastating. Now, I don't, that's not a provable proposition, but I don't think we should take as a given that uh, this would have been something that uh, successive governments over time would have simply tolerated. Um, ditto, you know, what the situation in Yemen um, was again, this was something in which a group of people were projecting force against the United States. And I think there was a, um, you know, with, with some degree of success actually. And, and so I think there's, you know, it is very important to examine significantly, not simply to assert the answer to the question of what the null hypothesis is. And I, I, I'm not, I have my own hypotheses about what the null hypothesis should be, but I, which I'm not going to insist on. I, what I do insist on is that it's not simply a matter of assertion. Any other things? I'll, I'll, I'll take that on a little bit. I, I, I guess uh, I raised two points. Um, one is that uh, I think it's, it's not about costs, it's about perceptions of cost, uh, which can be mistaken. Um, I think that perceptions of the, the low economic costs of drones are often mistaken, for instance, when you, when you consider both the uh, research and development costs and other kinds of costs that go into making them and the increasing costs as they become more sophisticated and complex. Uh, so I, I think that there are some real issues about uh, costs versus just perceptions of cost. But I do think, though, that the perceptions of reduced costs do affect behavior. On, on, I, and, and Ben, you're absolutely right that, that the inconvenient tendency of humans not to cluster into control groups so we can study them more effectively uh, makes it, of course, hard for us to definitively conclude uh, you know, what might have happened had this not been the case. But I, I think that there were, there were and there, frankly, un continue to be uh, an, an, extremely powerful reasons for the U.S. not to use alternative means uh, uh, in Pakistan, uh, first and foremost being the uh, uh, presence of nuclear weapons in Pakistan, uh, which, which I think enable and make appealing uh, targeted killings via, via UAVs and make extraordinarily costly other forms of action. So I, you know, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're right to raise that issue, of course, and we, we, don't, we don't know. I mean, I suppose I'm inclined to, to, to look at the uh, expansion of drone strikes well beyond this original rather narrow list and, and say, 
you know, do the, do the lawyer thing for those of you who are, you know, say reseps locator, the, the thing speaks for itself. Um, it's a little hard to come up with plausible alternative explanations across the board. So I think your, your caution is, is right, but not, I don't, I don't, well, anyway, we can talk about this. We can go back and forth about this, but there are probably other things that people want to raise. Well, no, it just, it just underscores the transparency point, yeah. which, right. is, which is that Absolutely. You know, there are two degrees of difficulty in trying to measure this, right? The first is, um, uh, the first is Rose's point about the tendency of people to not just line themselves up neatly. The second is the refusal of the U.S. government to tell us how often they do it. Um, and so until and unless that's changed, this is, a, this is an academic conversation in which the best we can do is say, well, I suspect this is true, and I suspect it's not. And, and I think the part of the problem with this whole conversation is that on so many different points, that's where we are, um, where folks, regardless of their persuasion, regardless of their fealty to this administration or not, um, are left howling at the moon because all they can do is make assumptions. Yeah, uh, just three quick points. Uh, one, uh, it's not just where strikes occur, but uh, how often uh, and in what volume they occur. So the argument for Pakistan, which really I was thinking of, uh, of Yemen and Somalia, but the argument for Pakistan might be, look, we might have done some other stuff if we didn't have drones, but the promiscuous use of drones uh, over Pakistan is facilitated by the technology, and we would be more discerning uh, without the technology, which I, you know, I'm for having the technology, but I, I think we need to figure out ways to control it better. Uh, I guess I made my second point already. Yemen and Somalia, I think maybe we would not be uh, using force there at all, absent drones. And um, of course, uh, it shouldn't just be asserted. It should be tested. Who would say it should just be asserted? Um, but uh, it, we, we can look at this in ways other than just talking about drone strikes now. You know, in social science, people try to figure out ways to test these things. And my argument would be, look, do we behave generally like costs in terms of what other countries can do to us when we go there and kill people? Do we behave generally like that's something that's important and occasionally keeps us from having wars? Uh, so generalize the point. And uh, I think, yeah, it, we really do. Um, and uh, it's not a perfect analogy, but you know, the difference in behavior vis-a-vis -vis Iraq and Iran you know, is sort of telling. So I think uh, you know, drones maybe are, are a minute example of that sort of thing. Although one quick addendum, actually, which I think perhaps supports Ben's argument, um, is that uh, we have uh, special operations forces teams uh, in many, many places around the earth, some of which I know about and some of which I do not, um, uh, other than that they exist. Um, and uh, it is probably important to keep emphasizing that that neither targeted killing nor other forms of interventionist uh, activities, including intervention of mischief, are restricted to these particular technologies. Uh, and and while, while it is worth discussing the degree to which we think the availability of these technologies may, may enable and facilitate uh, policies we might not otherwise adopt, it's also important to remember that the, the, the ultimate issue has more to do with, uh, with sovereignty, with, with when and where the law of war applies, with what constitutes self-defense, and with what kinds of uh, legal or other mechanisms we might come up with to, to try to forge some greater consensus on, on how to restrain the state use of force. Because at the end of the day, you know, we ha we ha at the end of the day, if we have special operations forces uh, engaging in identical activities that have the identical result uh, it really doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter that it's not a drone. It doesn't make anybody feel better, and it doesn't make dead people less dead. 
Okay, with that, we'll turn it to the audience. Uh, please wait to be called on after you raise your hand and I, and I call on you. Uh, also, uh, please wait for the microphone and announce your name and affiliation. I guess uh, this gentleman right there uh, in the glasses, in the middle. You may want to keep your hand raised. Uh, my name is Stephen Shaw. Wonderful presentation. You've focused far more on lethality rather than surveillance, which I think is entirely appropriate. But nonetheless, if the president can unilaterally order surveillance of American citizens or others, uh, American citizens, doesn't this make the Fourth Amendment a dead letter? And I'm always curious why Americans are so strong on defending their Second Amendment rights, but far less so on the Fourth Amendment. Great, excellent point. Anyone on the panel? Well, I mean, I think the short answer to your question is, is the, I think, very unfortunate mentality that we have nothing to hide. Um, and, and I think for, for most Americans, the sort of, the trade-off between a little less liberty for a little more security when it's just a surveillance of my perfectly lawful activities in my perfectly lovely home doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, of course, I think that misses the point. Um, you know, I, I think the Fourth Amendment issues are, are lurking, um, but you know, only in a very general sense, because you know, we're not anywhere near a point where you're going to see the government try to use surveillance footage from a drone that couldn't have been obtained from a helicopter, um, that couldn't have been obtained through more conventional law enforcement methods uh, as evidence in a criminal investigation. And I think at that point, you'll see the ordinary Fourth Amendment questions. Um, and in that regard, I would encourage all of you to consider very carefully the division in last term's U.S. versus Jones case uh, about placing a GPS tracker on a car. You saw a fascinating split. The court was unanimous that it was a violation that, or that it was a search that required a warrant, um, or at least that triggered the Fourth Amendment, and so therefore violated it in that case. Um, but they divided as to why. Uh, so for some of the justices, it was the physical invasion of literally installing the GPS tracker on the car. But for four of the justices, uh, it was the extent to which it was an activity that only the government could engage in, uh, to actually follow some around, someone around via GPS for 20 some odd days. Um, and if there's a fifth vote for that proposition, then I think we're going to see more pushback on the Fourth Amendment front, um, but also a complete reimagining of our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, which at least for now proceeds on the, I think, very troubling fiction that anything a private citizen could do doesn't trigger the Fourth Amendment when done by the government. I, just, I would just add that, um, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but um, I think there's no reason to wait around uh, to, for people concerned about this issue for constitutional rulings that uh, tell them what their, for, what, you know, what their reasonable expectations of privacy ought to be or, or what have you. Um, you pass laws that uh, state by state or even at the federal level that say what, what's required for a warrant, whether it's on a drone or what have you. and. Uh, I think to the extent people uh, are concerned about it, uh, I think drones uh, have a promising promise for use in domestic context, but I really would hope uh, that there's uh, pretty stringent warrant requirements for the way they're used. So uh, people who are concerned about it ought to talk to their uh, congressmen or legislators in their states. I'll just say the trend in that direction has been always entirely in the opposite direction. I mean, it was the case 17 years ago that the, our principal privacy protections when it came to you know, the government use of technology to get our data was statutory. Um, and the only thing Congress has done since then is relax those protections. So I, I wouldn't hold out hope on that front, especially well, after last week. I have happy news, which is we don't need to worry about government surveillance because all of your fellow citizens are already photographing you with right. their cell phone cameras, as we, as we see, in fact. Uh, uh, but uh, but I, the other piece of happy news, uh, maybe, 
um, is that it appears that Americans think that their Second Amendment rights are going to protect them against the invasions of their Fourth Amendment rights. The uh, Reason magazine did a recent poll on uh, uh, attitudes towards uh, drones, and I was actually quite astonished by this result, which may be somewhat, question, somewhat dubious um, in terms of the precise questions asked. But 40% uh, of Americans said that if a surveillance drone was hovering over their property, that they felt that they had the right to shoot it down. So. <laughs> So apparently they're gonna, that's what those guns are for. <laughs> Excellent, uh, uh, yes, the gentleman right there in the orange tie. So my name is Evan Bernick, I'm with Cato, and I have a question about the AUMF. Um, obviously it refers to Al-Qaeda organizations connected to 9-11. It's been reauthorized over the course of the last 10 years. Uh, my question is, what exactly is it? Um, the white paper refers to senior Al-Qaeda members who are American citizens. It says we can use drone strikes on them under certain conditions. And the question, of course, is whether these individuals are civilians or whether they're enemy combatants. That makes a great deal of difference. So um, is the AUMF a declaration of war? Are the subjects of the AUMF um, enemy combatants? And what are the implications of this? Uh, no, yes, and complicated. Um, right, the, the AUMF is not a declaration of war. Um, it is what in the old days we referred to as an imperfect war, uh, right? It's an author. The, the Constitution gives Congress the power to declare war, but it's long been accepted that an incident of that power is the power to authorize lesser forms of military force. So just to give you an example, there are dozens of statutes that are triggered by a declaration of war. Uh, none of them are triggered by the AUMF, um, right? So it's limited by its terms. Uh, the Supreme Court held in the Hamdan case, which you know I'm a little biased about, um, that the AUMF did in fact trigger the international laws of war, uh, intentionally so, um, insofar as it uh, uh, recognized the existence of an armed conflict. Um, and so the consequence of that is that, yes, someone who is a member of al-Qaeda um, or those other organizations that are properly within the scope of the AUMF can in fact be treated, um, so long as they are engaged in acts of belligerency, as belligerents. Um, the hard question, the one that the courts have thus far, I think, skirted, is what about someone who is a whole, is a pacifist member of al-Qaeda, right? Someone who is a, um, I mean, I, I don't mean to make it a, a preposterous hypothetical, but someone who is a member of al-Qaeda who has never engaged in anything that looks like an act of belligerency. Um, and the reality is that the statute seems to encompass that person, but I think he'd have a pretty good argument on the merits if he ever got there. Um, so, you know, I now, with regard to where the debate is today, with regard to citizens on the home front, I mean, I think that's, I alluded in my remarks to the NDAA from 2012, and I think the frustrating reality is that the law is decidedly unclear about how far the AUMF goes within the United States. Um, you know, there have been exactly two people detained under the auspices of the AUMF since 9-11 who were arrested inside the United States, Jose Padilla, uh, a citizen, uh, and Ali Almari, a non-citizen, and the government made both of those cases go away before they got to the Supreme Court. Um, so I think it's actually an open question whether and to what extent a citizen in the U.S. could be subjected to the use of force under the AUMF, but just to sort of tie things together, absent some clear connection to al-Qaeda, you know, even an attack like the one we saw last week wouldn't count. I, um, a couple additional points. Um, one is that uh, it's not all or nothing, either somebody's an enemy combatant or we can't do anything about them. Right. And, and from an international law perspective, it's not obvious that the conclusion should be that uh, Al-Qaeda members uh, uh, 
directly our, our enemy combatants as opposed to civilians who may nevertheless be targetable by the United States and attainable as well, of course, by virtue of their direct participation in hostilities. It, it's worth pointing out, because this has some applicability to other questions about judicial review of targeted killing, for instance, oh, yeah. that the, the Israeli Supreme Court, a country that uh, has a similar legal tradition to ours, as well as facing uh, terrorism challenges that are indeed far more severe in day to day than ours. The Israeli Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled on uh, targeted killing issues in 2006 and rejected, first of all, just rejected the notion that this is not an appropriate matter for judicial review. They said, look, the the, the applicability of the law to the facts, that's what judges do. Um, and this is no different from any other situation. Uh, but they also, in that context, they said, yes, Israel is in an armed conflict with uh, Palestinian terrorist organizations, but they found that individual members of those terrorist organizations had the status of civilians under the Fourth Geneva Convention, uh, which doesn't mean you can't kill them, but it means that you they have you, they have protections except when directly participating in hostilities, which in turn is a whole other ball of wax of how you interpret that. Um, but I, the final thing. I, I, I just go berserk when I see this stuff about these, these Boston Marathon bombers and should they be held as enemy combatants. I, you know, just, just to put it out there, we at this point have no evidence whatsoever that they were fundamentally different from the two kids who did the Columbine shooting, who, who apparently uh, you know, had been reading up on white supremacist Nazi propaganda before the shooting. Nobody said that they were Nazi combatants or members of the Nazi party. You know, we said, we said these, are two, these are two disturbed criminals. Um, and the fact that they may have found it quite fascinating and delightful to spend a little time uh, reading or being inspired by uh, hate and violence-filled videos or material produced by an organization somewhere does not make them members of that organization, does not make them part of a conflict against the United States in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, about 20 minutes ago, we unsealed an indictment against Sarnayev. Quite right. Shockingly. Um, just point of clarification, nobody said anything that contradicts this, but I think it's important to be clear. What the authorization of military force says is it gives the president power to use, quote, all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or people, persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th or harbored them. Okay? So it doesn't say Al Qaeda associated forces. That's something the Bush administration, now the Obama administration, said that that, uh, that law allows. But it says the people who planned September 11th or harbored them, and that has migrated into a warrant to go after pretty much anyone who you can label a terrorist. So, so I, 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 was, I was going to keep my mouth shut, but now I can't. Um, so people say that last bit um, as though it were um, sort of self-evident that, uh, that it's just ridiculous, the migration that has taken place under the AUMF. And, and I think everybody who works with the AUMF has struggled with the question of what the scope of its reach is. But you know, there is this principle in warfare that if you're at war with party X and party Y joins the war on the side of party X uh, and becomes a co-belligerent force with party X, you're allowed to target party Y. And you know, I don't know how you should think about Al-Shabaab in that context or say an organization like AQAP, which you know, enters the war very self-consciously affiliating with the other side in it, adopts its 
uh, ideology, adopts its conflict, adopts its methods, and adopts you as an enemy. But it is, it is not a singularly stupid idea that, you know, un, under a set of fact patterns like that, that's not really very different from, you know, being at war with, you know, Germany and finding out that Romania has entered the war on Germany's side. Except that we, de except that we declared war against Romania. Um, right. I mean, so the, the I mean, that's you set me up well there. Um, <laughs> right. In fact, Romania is the last country we've ever declared war against. There's a good trivia question to test your your friends with. Um, but right. The, so just I mean, two points. Right. I'm actually in between uh, Ben and Ben on this one. Um, wow. Um, right. And, and so the first is um, it's not just something that the Bush administration made up. It has now been codified. Um, right, so in Section 1021B of the NDAA, Congress in 2012 actually did uh, incorporate this idea of associated forces, largely for the reasons Ben has described. And, and only for purposes of detention. Yeah. And only for, purposes right. of det only for purposes of detention. But the, the larger point, though, is it behooves us to try to figure out exactly who, or I should, should I say which groups, the, this or any future administration believes to be an associated force. Whether or not their determination is reviewable, which I think is a separate question, it should at the very least be public, um, which goes back to our larger thing about transparency. Yeah, I didn't say it was ridiculous or stupid. In fact, I said it was predictable that the president would grab powers because that's how the Constitution expects president to behave. I said the problem is that Congress hasn't restricted him. So um, I don't think it's ridiculous. I think it's, it's predictable. And uh, I blame Congress for not doing something about it and uh, writing stricter laws about uh, who it can be applied to. I, I, I think that I think there's 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 both a legal question, a strategic question, and, and absolutely that's absolutely right. Of course, if a, if another organization says Al Qaeda, we stand with you in every way, and we're going to we're going to work with you actively to you know plan and engage in tax against the United States and support you in your endeavors. Absolutely, I think that there's there's no legal doubt that they become targetable as a co-belligerent. I think that there there is sort of legal and factual doubt as to whether certain organizations such as Al Shabaab could could reasonably be viewed as having co-belligerent status. And then there's of course just the strategic question of uh, you know are we are we inspiring people to affiliate with Al Qaeda? Have we created a franchise? Are our actions in fact extending that franchise? That's a whole different question, of course. Okay. Well, one of our final questions. Uh, we'll go to the gentleman in the middle, John. Uh, John Glazer, antiwar.com. Um, one other problem with what Mr. Wittes just said is that we've apparently been targeting basically domestic rabble-rousers that Pakistani government and the Yemeni government don't like. Um, and it's hard to find with those in individuals just where they have a direct connection to the militant groups we've explicitly stated we're fighting against. And so. This speaks to the point that Mr. Friedman made explicitly, which is that the Obama administration has redefined imminence as a stipulation for the use of force um, in order to say whoever we want to target is an imminent threat. That basically throws it out the window. And so it appears that the Obama administration has broken the law. And so in that context, how is anybody supposed to try to impose some accountability when the Obama administration pulls its proverbial stiff arm in the direction of any attempt to impose uh, judicial scrutiny. So I want to uh, challenge you on the factual premise there with respect to imminence. Um, uh, I lay this out in some detail in some congressional testimony that I gave recently, actually, with Steve. Um, 
but I, I think the imminence passage of, and I'm not gonna go into this in detail here, but I think the imminence passage in the white paper has been pretty systematically misread um, in the press. Um, and I don't think it means what people are saying it means. I think it read, read properly what they are saying in, in, in that white paper about imminence is that it is probative of whether somebody poses an imminent threat if they have, th th their past conduct is a window, is one set of things that you might consider in making a judgment as to whether uh, somebody poses an imminent threat. I think this is actually an uncontroversial proposition. Um, and I also think, um, furthermore, that the actual substantive standard of imminence that they've identified is really very little different from the standard of imminence that domestic uh, police would apply in, say, a hostage situation, which is to say, if I'm holding, you know, if there's, the cops are surrounding this building because I'm holding all of you hostage in, in this room, one of their sharpshooters has a shot on me, they're not gonna ask the question, am I literally now raising the gun to take out Steve? They're gonna ask the question, mind you, I would, but um, they're, they're, they're going to ask the question, do, is this a window of opportunity in which we have to act? If, if we do not take, then we might lose a second opportunity to neutralize the threat, and they would call that imminence. I think that's very similar, actually, to the standard of imminence that the administration used in the Alalauki case. So I would say two brief things. Um, the first is, I, I think it's very important for purposes of the imminence conversation to distinguish between the two categories of cases in which we actually would think the use of force would be lawful. Um, so if it's under the auspices of the AUMF in the traditional, or at least in the sort of hybridization of the traditional armed conflict paradigm, there's never a requirement under the laws of war that, that you attack someone only when they pose an imminent threat, right? I mean, during World War II, you can kill German soldiers while they're sleeping, um, and it's not a war crime. Um, so in that regard, I think actually the administration, by embracing imminence, is actually doing something useful, even if I have quibbles with how they have you know, defined it in the white paper. And let's, let me just say again, I don't think the white paper is the relevant definition. I think it's the classified OLC memo that's the relevant definition. The harder question with imminence is the other category. It's where the justification for the use of force is not because it's, um, it's a member of AUMF who we're confronting on a foreign battlefield, but it's an act of self-defense. Um, and in the self-defense context, I think that's where the definition of imminence really matters. Um, and that's where I think you'll see much more pressure on, you know, imminence really meaning at this moment they are engaged in an imminent threat or planning an imminent attack and there's no other thing we can do. And so I think we can't just have a, 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 a structural conversation about imminence. It has to be what is the context we're having it in? What is the actual claim? And then if the answer is assuming all these things are true, how do we create accountability? You know. Um, if you were paying attention, you know, an hour and a half ago, um, civil damages. I mean, I think, you know, if you, the, the, it sounds cheesy and simple and stupid, but the way to get an executive branch that doesn't want to prosecute itself, you know, to have to be accountable is to require them to show themselves before a judge. Let me just say, um, I don't think the answer to the problem that I think we both identify is a law. It's power and incentives that cause people to enforce a law. And so, you know, whenever you're talking about the rule makers, Congress, uh, the question is, how do you get them to make certain rules and enforce those rules, right? They can always change them. So um, the, the, there's no magic bullet legal standard. What there is is, is a, a, a 
incentives that will cause behavior in Congress that would lead to good results. Unfortunately, we are way over time, and it looks like we've just had a very thought-provoking and enriching discussion, which is why we went over time. I want to thank all my panelists on, on the dais with me here today, uh, Benjamin Wittes, Steve Waddick, Rosa Brooks, and Benjamin Friedman.